0: It's the third week of January 1924 and excitement is in the air in Melbourne. The first ever radio broadcast is about to be made in the city, sending popular musical comedy actress Josie Melville's sweet voice through the ether. But in the suburb of Richmond, a young man has already been hearing wireless messages. They're not the joyful crackle of songs transmitted by an amazing new technology. These sinister whispers are part of a complex conspiracy. The man's being watched. He and his family are being talked about. Whenever he's asleep, his mind is being controlled. These enemies, they've been stalking him for years. They haunted him in America. Now they've followed him to his hometown of Melbourne. He's tried to fend them off with books, his studies, his translations, his mathematics. Nothing's worked. Now he's going on the offensive. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. In the 21st century, random mass shootings make the headlines all too often, and these headlines are thought to inspire copycats. While this seems a very modern and very American phenomenon, the first recorded case of such a killing spree inspiring another shooter took place nearly a century ago. In Australia. At 6.30pm Wednesday the 23rd of January 1924, people were enjoying the last hour of sunlight amid the greenery of Melbourne's Botanic Gardens, just east of the city's central business district. As one newspaper described the scene, little knots of people were gathered, reclining at ease in the peaceful calm of a delightful summer evening. In one of the easternmost lawns, Near the corner of Domain Road and Anderson Street, 39-year-old Eugenie Strohaker sat on a park seat, doing her knitting, while her three children, aged 8, 5 and 11 months, splashed themselves at a tap. A few yards away, Eugenie's friend, 42-year-old Marie Parry, reclined against a small tree, near to her own 11-month-old adopted daughter. On another section of the eastern lawns, John Moxham, 37, and his wife Maud, also in her 30s, and their two children, aged 8 and 5, were about to head home after their picnic dinner. Fifty yards from the Moxham family, 75-year-old Frederick McElwain, just returned to Australia for the first time in 20 years, was stretched out on the grass, happy to be in the gardens that he'd loved exploring as a boy. Sitting on another bench in another green alcove was Miriam Podbury, 45, a maid who was reading a book on her day off. In a split second, the serenity of this summer evening was shattered by the sharp crack of a gunshot. Another followed quickly. The first bullet hit Mrs. Parry in the jaw, smashing the bone, ricocheting down her throat, piercing one lung and lodging in her back. The second bullet struck Mrs. Strohaker in the neck. Not far away, two off-duty police constables heard the shots, but they thought it was the groundskeeper shooting the cormorants that raided the garden's ponds for fish. Other people in the area believed they'd heard a car backfiring on nearby Domaine Road. That's what Mrs. Moxham thought too. Then she saw him. A man with a rifle, maybe 100 yards away, rising from the lawn, aiming his gun right at her. She screamed and ducked behind a bush. As she did so, the man took aim at Frederick McIlwain and fired again. The old man was hit in the chest, slumping face down on the grass. Now the shooter aimed at John Moxham, also lying on his side on the lawn. Mr. Moxham saw him, raised his hand defensively. The first bullet shattered his fingers. Trying to get to his feet, Mr. Moxham was now shot in the back. He felt like he'd been hit with a hammer and fell to the grass bleeding. Racing away, the gunman saw Miss Podbury and fired again, hitting her in the throat. Upon hearing the gunshots, the head gardener, Mr. St. John, who knew he wasn't responsible, grabbed his shotgun and ran towards the Anderson Street end of the gardens. He and other witnesses, including the two off-duty constables, came across appalling scenes. Mrs. Strohaker was dead on the grass, knitting still in her hand, her oldest daughter wailing beside her, "'Are you sick, mummy?' A few yards away, Mrs. Parry was unconscious but alive, bleeding from her disfiguring face wound slumped against a small tree, having managed to crawl to her baby. Miss Podbury was dead on her seat, feet still crossed, eyes staring in blank disbelief, book open beside her. Mr. McIlwain had also died instantly, his hat and walking stick next to him on the grass. Mrs. Moxham and her children were screaming over the heavily bleeding Mr. Moxham. I have been shot by a man, he gasped, But I do not know why he shot me. Despite her hysteria, Mrs. Moxon was able to tell the police which direction the shooter had fled. Another witness, a medical student, had also seen a deranged looking man with a rifle heading that way. The groundskeeper, Mr. St. John, and one of the off duty constables gave chase, but they encountered only the head night watchman, who had also heard the shots and who summoned the ambulance and more police. One witness said the man responsible for the shooting had climbed an iron fence that surrounded the garden's reservoir. Another witness said he'd climbed another fence that enclosed the gardens and escaped along Anderson Street. Four minutes had elapsed from the first shot to last, with the shooter covering 400 yards before disappearing. Three people were dead, two more grievously wounded. The victims were strangers to each other, and thus also had to be unknown to the shooter. These sudden violent murders had been cold-blooded and deliberate, but also random. It was a crime Australia had never seen before. Close to the Botanic Gardens, a pair of special constables had been informed of the shooting and were looking out for a man with a rifle. What they encountered instead was a chap who just seemed agitated. Questioned as to where he was going, he stammered his answers. But he had no gun, so they let him go, and saw him try to hail a taxi further along the road. The taxi driver stopped but didn't pick him up because he had a full load of passengers. The taxi driver later said, the young man implored him to bring back more police because he could show them where the shooter was. When the driver returned just a few minutes later with some special constables, the mysterious young man was gone. Within 15 minutes of the shooting, between 150 and 200 police descended on the gardens and surrounding suburbs. They searched for hours, electric torches flashing in the undergrowth, voices carrying through the dark night. Anyone bearing even a remote resemblance to the fugitive in surrounding streets and suburbs was stopped and questioned. But no trace was found of the shooter. Survivors Marie Perry and John Moxham had been rushed to the Alfred Hospital, where they underwent emergency surgery on Wednesday night. In the early hours of Thursday morning, they both remained in critical condition. Special editions of Melbourne newspapers hit the streets before dawn. Their pages carried the description of the shooter, which had been based on eyewitness accounts, including those provided by the special constables who'd let him slip away. Police were after a man aged about 26, just five feet tall, with a thin build and sallow complexion. He had a large nose and a twitching large mouth with a peculiar way of opening that revealed a number of gold teeth. The tabloid newspaper The Sun News Pictorial was headlined, Mad Rifleman Shoots with Murderous Accuracy. The tragedy is probably unparalleled in Melbourne's history for its cool horror and the deadly certainty of the maniac's aim, read its lead article. The Argus called it one of the most horrible and terrible tragedies in the history of Melbourne. Because a witness had seen the shooter climb the reservoir fence, it was thought he might have drowned himself, and plans were made to drain this little lake. But a more compelling reason for the shooter's interest in this part of the park revealed itself at 6am the morning after the massacre when police found a rifle in bushes near the waterhole. The gun was still loaded with four cartridges and more were found nearby in an ammunition box. The bullets were of the dum-dum style, the soft nose meaning they flattened on impact inflicting deep, wide wounds. Typically, they were used long range against big game like kangaroos. At short range against humans, They were devastating. Brown paper and twine, the sort used as store wrapping, was also discovered. Near to where one of the women had died, further discoveries were made. Exercise books, two books about motorcycles, and a bottle of rifle oil. When the water level in the reservoir was lowered that morning, searchers didn't find the body of a remorseful suicide. The murderer was still out there. The way the shooter had moved around and his horrifically deadly marksmanship led police to believe he had military training. Not that that narrowed the suspect pool too much. Nearly a quarter of a million Australian men had come home from the Great War. The massacre took place less than three months after the police strike that led to the weekend of rioting, looting, violence and murder in Melbourne that we explored in Episode 2 of Forgotten Australia. Not one of the 636 police who had gone on strike had gotten their jobs back. That meant the force was still seriously understaffed. Public trust was low, with one newspaper unfairly suggesting that more patrolling beat cops might have prevented the tragedy by identifying the maniac before he struck. Several of the city's top cops took control of the case. The most visible was senior detective Frederick Pigott a man with a stellar reputation, having recently solved two sensational homicide cases. It was senior Detective Pigott who would brief the newspapers and, through them, try to reassure Melbourne that everything possible was being done to bring the killer to justice. Yet this top cop had his work cut out for him. Dr. Ernest Jones, Inspector General of Asylums, believed the shooter was suffering paranoia, likely chronic, systematic, delusional insanity. Such a man, Dr. Jones said, would be more crafty and difficult to run down than a frenzied man who might commit suicide after such a violent outburst. Senior Detective Piggott now had a valuable clue. The gun from the bushes near the reservoir was an American-made Marlin repeating rifle. Even though the clumsy special constables who found this weapon handled it before submitting it for fingerprint investigation there was still an inescapable conclusion to be drawn from the gun's condition. It was brand new, which fit with wrapping paper also being found. Senior Detective Pigott and his men set out to interview city gunsmiths. It wasn't long before they found one on Burke Street who, the day before the massacre, had sold the rifle to a man who said he wanted to use it for hunting. There was nothing in his demeanour in the shop to suggest that he was not normal, the gunsmith told the cops. The man had paid £7.10 shillings for the rifle. While buyers needed police authority to purchase handguns, which were concealable, and weapons of choice for thugs like infamous Squizzy Taylor, no such restrictions applied to long guns. All a customer had to do was supply a name and address. The man who'd bought the rifle at the Burke Street gun shop called himself N-List and put down his residence as the Victorian Seamen's Institute in the city. The police had what was likely a fictitious name and address. Indeed, inquiries at the Seamans Institute the following morning turned up nothing. Following a hunch that the man had worked on boats, the police made inquiries at the Mercantile Institute. There, they hit pay dirt. A man named Norman Albert List, born 4th of April, 1893 in Melbourne, had been discharged from the steamship Great City on the 20th of September, 1923. Taking this name to the city's titles and electoral offices yielded the information that his father, Charles List, resided in suburban Richmond. Three detectives converged on a well-kept weatherboard house that afternoon. The fugitive wasn't there and instead the police found Norman's father Charles and his sisters Florence and Alma. They hadn't seen Norman since Wednesday morning. He'd now been away for two nights. Upon reading about the Botanic Gardens massacre and the description of the shooter, they'd begun to worry. The police searched Norman's room, finding French and Spanish dictionaries, books about mathematics and geometry, and a Bible. They discovered pages from an exercise book like those found at the crime scene. There was also the frame to a safety razor, but its blade was missing. Most incriminatingly, the police found a sales catalogue for a rifle like the one Norman had bought, and handwritten notes about the sort of ammunition he wanted. Interviewing his family, a disturbing picture emerged of Norman List. From an early age, he had loved reading books about travel and adventure and had been anxious to see the world. He was also fond of long, rambling walks. On Boxing Day 1911, at age 17, Norman left home, hiking from Melbourne to Newcastle in New South Wales, a distance of more than 600 miles. And from that port, he worked his passage on a ship to the United States. On the other side of the world, he embraced a hobo lifestyle, tramping in America and in Mexico. He also learned how to shoot at rifle clubs. When the Great War was at its height, Norman travelled to England and enlisted in the British Army to do his duty. After the armistice, he returned to America to work as a ship steward. Norman had returned to Melbourne just four months ago, seeing his family for the first time in 14 years. The boy who'd left was now 30, had an American accent, numerous gold teeth and two tattoos. On his right arm, he had a figure of a dancing girl and on his left, a kangaroo tattoo. Norman soon lit out, tramping to Tallangatta and to Warburton where he worked in the timber mills. More recently, he'd worked as a farmhand in Laverton and only left there two weeks ago to again stay in the family home in Richmond. While his wanderlust marked him as unusual, What was more disturbing were the family's accounts of his activities and beliefs. A police detective asked Norman's father, When you saw in the Herald tonight the story of what happened in the gardens, was there anything in it to make you believe that your son had done it? Yes, Charles List answered. He has been queer in his mind for some time. The family told police that Norman thought people were talking about him. The boys he worked with at Laverton, he said, were telling lies about him his father and his sisters. The same thing had gone on in America. Norman thought people were controlling his mind while he slept and that someone was sending wireless messages to injure his family. He complained that his enemies in America had a system of radio that advertised him wherever he went so that people always knew about him before he arrived anywhere. Norman sought solace in mathematics, astronomy and in trying to translate an English Bible into French. Norman also worried he'd picked up the syph, that is syphilis, while in Mexico. But he had already been to a doctor in Richmond who found no evidence of venereal disease. It all seemed to be in his mind. Norman's father and sisters thought he was delusional, but otherwise harmless, And as recently as two days before the shooting, he'd said he was going to Warburton again to work in the timber mills. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news! Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash free. That's amazon.com slash free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On the afternoon of Tuesday the 22nd of January, Norman's father gave him cash in exchange for his final work check of £10.12. shillings. This was all the money that Norman had in the world. Norman had dinner at home that night, and the next morning told his sister he'd be around for lunch. But he wasn't, and no one in the family had seen him since. Remarkably, no one in his family thought to tell police that Norman had acquired two tattoos during his travels. But the police had also failed to ask if he had any such identifying marks. Had that information been known, it could have saved much confusion caused by scores of false sightings. On the 25th of January, the newspapers had a face, a name, a photo, and a life story. On the trail of mad gunmen, read the Herald headline over Norman List's profile portrait. The papers, fed by senior detective Piggott, were quick to announce the fugitive had been deranged by too much reading. The Sun's headline was this, made mad by much learning, Norman List still wanders in a world of his own. Reporters tracked down people Norman had known recently, but no one had any inkling that anything had been the matter with him. The wife of the farmer who employed him in Laverton said he was efficient, courteous, polite, and no trouble of any kind, though she did say he was a bit of a loner. Workmates he'd planned to see that week in Warburton were surprised when he didn't show up and were shocked to hear what he was alleged to have done. Why had he committed such an outrage? Where was he? And would Norman List kill again? In the Alfred Hospital, the bullet that hit Mrs Parry had been removed and she was recovering strongly. But Mr Moxham's wounds were more complicated because the dum-dum bullet had done much damage. With his wife and children at his side, he told detectives what he remembered of the shooting. And, looking at his bandaged hand, the accountant said plaintively, I shall not be able to do any more writing. It's hard luck for the wife and kiddies. Their luck would get harder when he died of his injuries two days later, bringing the Botanic Garden's shooting death toll to four. On the 26th of January, Foundation Day, as Australia Day was then called in Victoria, police debated among themselves as to whether Norman List was alive or dead. Because he was last seen unsuccessfully hailing a taxi driver on an avenue near the Yarra River, some police thought he'd then gone and drowned himself. It was pure speculation, but nevertheless, a watch was being kept on the river, in case his body should float to the surface. Senior Detective Pigott didn't believe that Norman List was dead. He thought he'd either left the state already, or would try to do so. A watch was being kept on shipping centres, and wireless messages had been sent to all vessels that had left Victoria since Wednesday. Senior Detective Pigott told the public what to do if they saw Norman List, or someone they thought might be him detain him, advise police and hold him until they arrived. Citizens unable to effect such a potentially dangerous arrest were told to follow him to his destination and then call police. In the next few days, Norman List was seen everywhere. In 24 hours alone in Richmond, a police sergeant followed up six false alarms. The final suspect, sitting in a local park, proving to be a personal friend of the overtaxed copper. A passenger in a train in Seymour spotted an agitated fellow who burst into tears when the subject of the massacre was brought up. He reported to police that he thought the man looked like Norman List. A truck driver told police he gave a lift to a List, with the man getting out at Footscray, though bound for Geelong. The phone operator at Russell Street Police Station was kept busy around the clock with tips from the public clairvoyance offered to assist, but the police declined. Letters poured in from writers describing dreams that foretold the murders and showed where the killer was hiding. Even one of victim Mrs. Strohaker’s friends claimed she’d dreamt about the massacre nearly a week before it happened, her feelings of foreboding preventing her from going to the gardens that day. Why she’d let her friend go to her death wasn’t explained. Alienists, as psychologists were then known, also weighed in. A leading alienist reckoned Norman would head for the countryside. If we may assume that List is suffering from persecution or paranoia, he would most likely run away from the hue and cry of the city, the doctor said. Anticipating modern forensic profiling, Melbourne newspaper The Herald thought that the police should pay attention to the alienists. One journalist wrote, The point is that the alienists know more about the case than the detectives, and large numbers of detectives frankly admit it. The fact which the detectives have practically established that no motive existed for the shooting of five total strangers points to the paranoid theory. These alienists also said suicide was unlikely, and that rather than presenting as an agitated individual, Norman List was more likely to be quietly spoken, reticent, cool and collected, and express no particular interest in the manhunt. The Herald believed that the police should be listening to the alienists and putting into circulation such a description for country people who might be unwittingly harbouring just such a man. From the Dead Letter Office, police took possession of letters written by Norman List that, the Herald said, made it clear that the job of finding him is as much for experts in mental ailments as for the police. But Senior Detective Piggott wasn't convinced of that interpretation at all and was sceptical of the help that ailiness might be able to furnish. It is obvious, he said, that he is not so very mad. I doubt, Piggott continued, if alienists, even if we had them working with us, would be very much assistance. If they had the subject here and could question him, they could arrive at some definite conclusion. But failing that, it would all be guesswork, and doctors are not inclined to make guesses. While there had been sightings everywhere, no one had actually seen Norman List. Maybe they should be looking for a different man, or not even looking for a man at all. That was the idea behind the Herald running a photo of List in which an artist had added unruly hair and a thick beard. The Sun newspaper went one better. Do you know her? asked the caption on the front page beside Norman List's photo, now doctored to look like a woman. In Bendigo, a man was spotted answering the description of Norman List dressed as a woman. Another supposed suspect proved to be a 70-year-old man. In Ballarat, when an exhausted white horse staggered into Coppen and Co's stables and fell down and died, it was theorised that Norman List had stolen the animal and ridden it to its death. In Sydney and Adelaide, and in country regions of New South Wales and South Australia, police were said to be energetically searching railway stations and wharves and watching all avenues of escape. But the strongest lead came from a mailman, who was sure he had twice met Norman List, indeed now sporting a beard and moustache, at a camp at Kensington. He said the man, who spoke with an American or Spanish accent, was asking about when boats left Melbourne for Western Australia and India. This man also had at least one gold tooth, which fit the description of Norman List. After speaking to the witness and investigating the Kensington camp, Senior Detective Piggott was convinced that Norman List had been there and that this showed his mind was working normally. This top cop said, He knows that everybody is on the lookout for him and he is using all his wits to evade capture. If he was mad at the time of the shooting, he is not mad now. Senior Detective Piggott also now warned that Norman List had a pistol. He'd been known to have one in his possession at Laverton but it hadn't been found among his effects. Nine days had now elapsed since the massacre. Norman List was proving a cunning and elusive adversary. He was still out there, armed and dangerous. Except, that wasn't the case at all. On Friday the 1st of February, Charles Johnston, an orchardist and returned soldier of Pakenham, about 30 miles southeast of Melbourne, was out in the bush collecting maidenhair ferns which he fed to his fowls. Hearing an intense buzzing noise, which he first took to be bees, Mr Johnston pushed through shoulder-height bracken towards a shallow waterway. "'At the edge of the creek I saw the body of a man,' he would recall. "'The feet and ankles were in the water.' The body was lying on the face and to me it seems as if the man had pitched across the water and fallen heavily and broken his neck. I did not touch the body, but I looked at it closely and at once thought it corresponded exactly to the published descriptions of List. Mr. Johnston scrambled for the local police constable, who, with a friend, came to the scene and hauled the body 300 yards to a waiting dray. But not before someone took a gruesome photo of Mr. Johnston peering down at the body, which was published in The Sun. Just before midnight, the body arrived at Melbourne's city morgue, where the deputy coroner, two detectives, and Norman's sister Florence waited. Though the body was in an advanced state of decomposition, Florence List was able to identify her brother by the tattooed figure of the dancing woman on his arm. She was then overcome with emotion and had to be assisted from the morgue. In the right side pocket of the trousers that Norman had worn was a razor blade, likely the one missing from his room. In his fob pocket was a little over two pounds, indicating he'd barely spent a penny since buying the rifle. But contrary to what Mr Johnson had thought, Norman List had not fallen and broken his neck. He'd made a deep two-inch cut in his left forearm and bled to death in that lonely spot. The autopsy suggested that Norman List had been dead four or five days, making it highly unlikely that he was the man seen in Kensington on the previous Sunday and Monday. While Senior Detective Piggott and the alienists had been right about Norman fleeing to the country, they'd been wrong about everything else. Norman List wasn't cunningly evading the police with cool detachment, as Senior Detective Piggott claimed, and contrary to what the alienists thought, he was suicidal. An inquest established the facts of the case, including Norman List's mental state, but provided no clue as to what caused his psychological disturbance or provoked him to so methodically murder complete strangers. Mass shootings are today defined as having four or more victims. By that measure, the first such crime committed against strangers occurred in 1903 in Kansas when a gunman opened fire at a concert, killing nine before he was arrested. Twenty years later and 9,000 miles away, Norman List committed the second such outrage to receive major newspaper coverage. But several things make his case resonate in a particularly modern way. Firstly, Norman List, like many subsequent shooters killed himself rather than be taken alive. Secondly, he appears to have inspired an immediate copycat. On the 11th of February 1924, less than three weeks after the Botanic Gardens massacre, 22-year-old Claude Batson opened fire on a picnic at Gingellic Creek near Aubrey on the New South Wales-Victorian border. In a sustained assault that saw him rain down bullets on his victims, Claude Batson inflicted serious gunshot wounds on four people. One victim died soon after reaching hospital. Claude Batson disappeared into the countryside, sparking another massive manhunt that lasted five days. After escaping a shootout with police, he took and terrorised hostages and tried to launch a bush-ranging career before being caught on the brink of starvation. Interviewed by police, Claude Batson claimed to have no knowledge of Norman List's crime, which, given the intense newspaper coverage and public discussion of the manhunt, was difficult to believe. Claude Batson was found criminally insane and spent the rest of his life in a psychiatric prison hospital. Shortly after the Gingelic Creek Massacre in Sydney, Sir John McPherson the city's best-known alienist, said that Claude Batson had undoubtedly been influenced by Norman List. Days later, in Goulburn, New South Wales, an escapee from a mental asylum burned several properties to the ground before shooting a complete stranger. Sydney's The Truth newspaper called this sequence of events Trajo's suggestion. The newspaper would put it this way, Norman List had only to shoot innocent citizens in a park in Melbourne to give rise to the suggestion in the peculiar brain of Claude Batson that he could rid himself of all his worldly troubles by imitating List's wholesale slaughter. The newspaper noted other copycat clusters, poisonings, suicides, crimes of passion, and concluded, "...the problem is an interesting subject for psychologists." More than 90 years later, psychologists at Arizona State University did take that as their subject, and they came to the same conclusion as the tabloid truth reporter had. In a 2015 paper called Contagion in Mass Killings and School Shootings, the researchers wrote that such crimes occur in bunches, which indicates that, spread by media reports, they basically infect new murderers. We find significant evidence that mass killings involving firearms are incented by similar events in the immediate past, the authors wrote. As for preventing such infection, after terrible random mass shootings in the 1980s and 1990s, such as those in Melbourne's Queen and Hoddle Streets and Tasmania's Port Arthur, Australia got an effective vaccine in gun control laws. Sadly, in the United States, the deadly infection flares up with increasing frequency. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba, New South Wales, Australia, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. If you liked what you heard... Please subscribe, share, tell your friends and head over to ForgottenAustralia.com for more episodes and more information. Please look out for my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is the story of Australia's forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. It's published by Hachette Australia in January 2019 and is available for pre-order wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening.